If you will turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem, Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler and will shepherd the people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasure, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Father, guide us as we look at your word again this morning. Thank you again for your presence with us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, our teacher. May he guide us in all truth this morning. And our Father, may you receive all the glory, the honor, and the praise as the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Just as a preface to this passage, it is interesting, we are in what we call the Christmas season. Not just Christmas Day, but the Christmas season. And so we say Jesus is the reason for the season. It's intriguing because I, it's, it's important for us, and I've just processed the last few days, to redefine for ourselves what the Christmas season is. Uh, commercially, okay, they have redefined the Christmas season. It goes all the way back. It used to be they'd wait till after Thanksgiving, but no more. It's uh, it's just right after Halloween, if not even before that. And it is nice to have real Christmas songs being sung in stores or played in stores. But it's another thing that they do it as long as they do. And it's not because they're trying to focus on the message. They're focusing on the money. And so for them, the Christmas season begins very early. It's interesting, by the way, sometime back, I heard someone at Thanksgiving saying that they thought FDR was the one who initiated Thanksgiving. He wasn't, actually. But FDR did try to change Thanksgiving. He changed it to a week before we now celebrate it. And he did it for commercial reasons because this year, Thanksgiving is so close to Christmas, they thought it might affect the economy. And so they did it, but it didn't last long because the people celebrated Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving, and they called the other Franksgiving. But uh, the other issue of the whole thing is it's all about money. I was intrigued because they start so early, and I was waiting for my wife two days after Christmas outside of a store. And in front of all these stores are these pillars, and they had these wreaths, plastic wreaths and plastic green stuff that they wrapped all the pillars with. And here came Mr. Grinch two days after Christmas with his little uh, electric cart and uh, his wagon in the back hauling all these things off off of there two days after Christmas. The interesting part to them, the Christmas season is over once the 26th is done. By the way, you do understand being from Canada that we have a day after Christmas called Boxing Day. And Boxing Day is the day after Christmas where you would take boxes and put food items in them to give them to the people who work for you and did services for you. But so we carry, but after the 26th, there is no reason for Christmas any longer. 
Christmas season is important for us as we define it, not letting the commercial world define it for us and let the season begin so early and uh, end so early, but rather to just meditate on all that the coming of Christ means to us. But the message today transcends the just the Christmas story, although it is taken out of the Christmas story. For the message today goes all the way from the birth of Christ to the death of Christ. And in fact, it matters it starts at Christmas and it ends at Easter, if you will. As you look at this, just some thoughts as a background for us. The statement of Zechariah 11.8 is interesting. <clears throat> God says, Then I, God, annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul was weary with me. Now the question, who are these three shepherds of Israel? Well, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And God, in one fell swoop, if you will, wiped out all of these. And if you will, notice what he did. He replaced them with Christ, who is the ultimate prophet. By the way, I put revelation here for this reason. It says the revelation of the Son of God. And actually... Of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the revelation not about him, but from him. But I thought Hebrews is also a valid place, because God, who in time past, Hebrews 1, 1, spoke to our fathers through the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet. Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest. And in Matthew and Revelation, Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. In reality, the unique Son of God at Christmas time, Hebrews 1.1, the eternal Son of God, John 1.1, the divine Son of God, John 1.1, the all-powerful Son of God, Colossians 1, has become to us the revelatory Son of God. He revealed God to us. The redemptive Son of God, He brought redemption to us. The reigning Son of God, He does reign, and He is one day returning. The context of this passage, if you look at Matthew, and we're looking at Matthew 1, 1 to 17, through 2, 1, 1 through 2, 23, we have the presentation of the king, 1, 1 to 17. Then we have the birth of the king, 1, 18 to 23. And that's where he was told, Joseph was told to take Mary, and he kept her virgin until verse 25, she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. We then have the recognition of the king, 2, 1 to 11. The Magi came to find him. Then we have the protection of the king, where again God sends the wise men, hold another home another way, and sends Joseph to Egypt to protect the king. There are contrasts here between the Jewish scribes and Gentile Magi we're going to look at, between the existing king, Herod, and the newborn king, Jesus, between the existing king and the Magi. Now, we come here to this section, the recognition of worship uh, and worship of the king, 2, 1 to 11, and the protection of the king. The broader context begins with Christ as the king. And I, I'm going to concentrate on that today for a while with you. The focus on the fact that he is the son of David. You look at chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now notice... The son of David first and the son of Abraham second because the son of David is the key point of this passage. His right to David's throne is proven in verses 1, 1 to 17. Twice he is called, Jesus is called the king of the Jews. By the way, both times by Gentiles, interestingly enough, not by Jews. When you have the Magi coming, where is he who is born to be king of the Jews? That's the first time. That's in the second chapter of the book. In the second last chapter of the book, it is Pontius Pilate who says, Are you the king of the Jews? He says, It is as you say. And then Pontius Pilate puts a sign over the cross saying, "He, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It is interesting because then it begins with this. Matthew 2, 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice, I was raised in the authorized version and began preaching on it. And it says, where is he who has been born to be the king of the Jews? That's not what it says. It's where is he who was born. He was born a king. 
He wasn't born to become a king. He was born a king. Somebody said to me recently, I made Christ the king of my life. And, and may I say to you, you didn't ever make Christ the king of your life. You may have acknowledged him as the king of your life. He is the king of your life. He is. Uh, you don't make him to be. He is. And, and the, the issue for us, even as we look at this passage, is to recognize that that's who he is. But Matthew ends with a focus on the king. Jesus stood before the governor. The governor questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it is as you say. And then he puts that sign over the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, it is all about Jesus, the king. It is true, and I, this is the outline I have put together and used for years, because the whole book is centered around the king. We have the presentation of the king, Matthew 1 to 4. The precepts of the king, I'll come back to this, in 5 to 7. The power of the king in 8 to 10. The program of the king, 11 to 13. The prediction of the king's passion, 14 to 18. The preparation for the king's passion, 19 to 25. And then the portrayal of the king's passion, 26 to 28. The whole point of it, the whole book of Matthew is focused on this. Watch this with me, if you will, just, just to get a feel of this. First of all, the presentation of the king. Where is he has been born king of the Jews? So in the first four chapters, the focus is on the king. Look at the next chapters, five to seven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And remember Matthew, I mean Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. The question is, if he is the king, does he have the power to accomplish what he does as a king? And, and the whole what Matthew does. In Matthew uh, 8, 1 to 11, 1, he takes a whole bunch of miracles and just puts them together. They, they're not, there's no chronological, true chronological order till Matthew 13. What he does, although they're in chronological progression, in Matthew 8 to 10, 8 to 11, he just takes all of these miracles and puts them together to show you that Jesus Christ has the power to be the king. But notice in this section, as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The program of the king. What was the point of this? In Matthew 13, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. He says, it's like this, like this, like this. You know, the whole point of this is that he is defining what's going to happen in the church age. You know, he's in control. He is the king. He can tell you exactly what's going to happen. Read Revelation, he tells us exactly what's going to happen. And so you find the defining of Christ in this. He and his, his control of everything sets him apart. His rejection sets him apart. And I'm intrigued in this section. There's some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, it doesn't matter where you walk in this book. It's all about the king. The passion. Look at this. In this section, he talks about the fact he's going, but he's coming back again. When the Son of Man comes, this is in the future in his glory, and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. See, it doesn't matter what section you look at. He is king. And then finally, in the end of this, this is Jesus, the King. No matter where you look in this book, Christ Jesus is seen as the King over and over and over again. All the way from his birth to his death. By the way, it doesn't stop there, you know. Okay? Listen to me carefully. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Authorized version. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, thought it not something to be grasped onto, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, it's not, 
just hear that he's king. He's going to be the exalted king in the future. And when the doors of heaven are open to John the Beloved, and he comes into heaven to see it, what's the first thing he sees? He sees the Lamb sitting on the throne in glory. However you look at it, just just to say to you, the message of this gospel, the message of the entire Bible, is that Jesus Christ is king. We sing the song, King of my life, I crown thee now. Uh, Again, I just remind you, it's the recognition of, you don't make him king, he is king. So I want to look at three things today. We should acknowledge him as king, we should worship him as king, and we should respond to him as king. First of all, look at, we should acknowledge him as king. This is genealogically proven in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. There are two genealogies, Matthew 1 and Luke 3. The one that's here. Now what's interesting is that for Matthew, the genealogy is absolutely crucial. That's why it's the very first chapter. For Luke, it's not as crucial to his story, so it's not till Luke chapter 3. But Matthew 1, the very first thing, we have to prove to the reader that Jesus Christ is truly the King. Luke 3, like I say, is not as crucial. What he does, he doesn't go back to Abraham or back to David. He goes all the way back to Adam. And uh, by the way, I do believe that what we have here is Joseph's line. What we have in Luke is Mary's line. Some would differ, but just we'll, we'll stick with that for today. Through Joseph, Matthew 1, Jesus gained the legal right to the throne. Through Mary, he gained the blood right uh, to the throne. But now one interesting thing here is you look at the genealogy. It's divided into three sections. The first section is in verses 1 to 6. At the end of section number 1, David's family gains kingship. At the end of number two, section number 2, which is in verse 11, David's family loses kingship. But at the end of section number 3, when Jesus Christ comes, David's family regains the kingship. He gains it the first section, he loses the second section, and through Jesus Christ he gains it again. Watch this. The fact that this is true, that he's trying to show us that he is king, is because when he starts the genealogy, he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham is first, but David is the key issue. Notice also, You have David mentioned here in verse 6, and Solomon, and uh, Rehoboam in verse 7, Abijah in verse 7, Asa, and so forth. All these kings, there's only one who is called a king, and that's David. He is the only one called, and and to Jesse was born David the king. Because the whole issue was, he is the son of David. He is the son of David the king, and because he is the son of David the king, he is the king. I was I went all the way through Matthew again this morning just to refresh myself, and it's interesting because when he comes a Syrophoenician woman, huh, he wasn't going to heal her, but she cries out. She says, "Oh, son of David, my child is demon possessed." She she's acknowledging the fact that she understands even as a Gentile who Jesus Christ was. He is of the Davidic line. He is the king. And she acknowledges that even in her cry to God. Notice also that when in the end it says that, notice in verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David 14. Now from David to deportation 14. David is the last name in section 1. David is the first name in section 2. But you see if David, and by the way that's how it's defined, But if David is not used as the last name of the one, the first section, the other, you don't have 14, as he posted here, 14, 14, and 14. But the 14, anyhow, David must be included twice. Notice something else in here. In the first section, verses 2 to 6, prophets are the main people during that period of time. In verses 6b through 11, where David's family loses the kingship, the kings are the main issue. 
But in the last section, verses 12 through 16, the priests are the most prominent. I remind you again, prophets, priests, and kings, and Jesus annihilated all of them and became the prophet, the priest, and the king. So again, I bring you back here. Three shepherds annihilated in one month, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, and our Lord Jesus Christ became the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and in this book, so clearly, the ultimate king. He is the king. He is your king. He is my king. He is the king of the universe. He is the king. It's interesting then we come back to this, see, the unique Son of God, eternal Son of God, divine Son of God, our powerful Son of God has become for us the revelatory, redemptive, reigning, and returning Son of God. Now, it's prophetically true, though, also. It's not just genealogically true, but prophetically true. Notice, if you will, in verses 18 and following of chapter 1, the birth of Jesus is as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall... You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now notice the statement, verse 22. All of this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is a key thing to what Matthew is showing in this passage. He wants to show us that all that is happening in Matthew 1 and 2 and following are all the result of prophecies from the Old Testament. Notice with me, go down with me if you will to chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, where is the child to be born? And they said to him, in Bethlehem, Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, for you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Follow with me down to verses 14 and 15. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Notice, and was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Go down to verses 17 and 18, if you will. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Go down with me to 22 and 23. In this section it says, And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea and placed his father Herod, he, Joseph, was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee, and came and resided in the city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Over and over again, he's saying this is a fulfillment of what God prophesied hundreds and thousands of years ago. <clears throat> I have a dear friend. Uh, his wife is now in glory. She married him, and she shouldn't have married him. He was Jewish. She knew it. But he, she married him. When they got married, they went to France where they worked in, over there in a travel agency. And so he, she says to him one day, would you read the Bible with me? He says, I'll read the Bible with you. So they started reading Matthew. Here this Jewish fellow is reading Matthew, and he reads, such was fulfilled, so was fulfilled, so was fulfilled, so was fulfilled. So he went back to his Old Testament scriptures to prove that Matthew was wrong. The trouble is he found out that Matthew was right. And because of that very truth, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and has been serving God faithfully in ministry ever since that time, many, many, many years ago. Why? 
Because he read this statement by Matthew, so was fulfilled, so was fulfilled, so was fulfilled. And trying to prove Matthew wrong, he proved Matthew right. And because of that, he came to realize that this was his Messiah. May I take you one step further? This is not only genealogically true and prophetically true, but it's practically proven to be true. Yeah, I, I want to read this, this interesting quotation. This one born in obscurity is recognized by unlikely devotees, the Magi, as the future king of Israel. The child whose birth is shrouded in suspicion of illegitimacy is in fact God's legitimate appointee. You know that the rest of his lifetime, they said, is this not the son of the carpenter? Oh, they had premarital sex, they're sure. I mean, there's no way they believed that this was child born of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that in a while. Joseph lived with that his entire life. The thought that this was actually his child, when in fact it wasn't. But you see the interesting part. This one born with suspicion of illegitimacy was in fact God's legitimate appointee. But notice something else. And on the other hand, the legal rulers, both political and religious, by clinging to positions of power and prestige, proved themselves to be the illegitimate ones in God's sight. He was not illegitimate, they were. The interesting part of this is that, sadly, it says the church in many ages has perpetuated this pattern. Many who think or claim to be the legitimate servants of God are illegitimate, and he is always, again, the one who is the legitimate king. Now, the key section to this, now, we must, again, recognize he is king. But the second thing, notice you can't miss in two, chapter 2. The focus is on worship. Verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then notice, if you will, down further in verse 11. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. The whole section, verses 1 to 11, is all about worship. They came to worship and they did worship. Um... I've done this and you can see the way I've done the outline that you have. There were four, uh, five ways of doing this and and the one and five are tied together and two and four are tied together and then verse three, I mean the third one is by itself if you will. The anticipation verses one to two of the Magi and the adoration verses 10 to 11 of the Magi, the anxiety Verses 1 to 2 of Herod, and the antagonism of Herod when he tried to kill all the babies to make sure he got Jesus. And in the middle of all this, the apathy of the scribes. I want to come back to this, but you know what? Notice the statement in this section where he makes it. When Herod heard this, verse 3 of chapter 2, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. I'm going to come back to this in a while. Herod did not like any opposition. Someone was talking recently, we were talking football. I enjoy talking football, any sports, I suppose, but anyhow. And he says, so-and-so, he had this assistant who was very, very good, but he was threatened by how popular he was, so he fired him. A lot of people have fired a lot of people over the years just because they weren't intimidated by their presence. Herod was big that way. We're going to get back to it in a while. His two favorite sons, they were going to rule when he died. But another son who was not his favorite got to the, the father and said, you know, these guys are trying to get rid of you early. And because of that, he killed his two favorite sons. Just because he was afraid that that might be true. He killed his favorite wife. You see, this man was so moved. By, so, so when, in fact, if you're going to kill your favorite sons and your favorite wife, and now they, the people of Jerusalem hear that this is a new king born, if he's going to kill his sons, he's certainly going to kill this person. And don't you think they weren't afraid? And that's what it says. Herod was afraid, but so were the people. You would be too. You never knew what Herod was going to do. 
And so when they come and say, where is he born king of the Jews? If you are threatened by your own sons, you're going to be threatened by this one. And therefore, you're going to do anything you can to annihilate him. So he was anxious at the beginning, as were the people, but then he became very antagonistic at the end. The involved the people. Three groups of people, the, the scribes, Herod, and the wise men. But just, just quickly, some thoughts. The parties involved in, this, in the statement made. Now, when you look at the parties in verse 4, it says, And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes. They, these were the religious leaders. The scribes, if you will, are the, uh, the theologians, if you will. These are the, are the political leaders. And he got them together, and it's interesting because the statement made, look at what they said. And I, I keep talking about this Gegreptite stands written. They said, you know what? It stands written what? Through the prophets, out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. They knew exactly what the Bible said. I'll come back to that in a while. They were false shepherds. They were not true shepherds. He was the true shepherd. They were the false ones. And yet they claimed to be the true ones. Herod was the acting ruler. Jesus Christ was the one who was born to rule. And the true worshippers were the magis and the ones who should be worshipping were the scribes. As soon as they heard that Jesus was born, and as soon as they heard that there was, and they knew that it was Bethlehem, they should have gone there. Notice the statement. The scribes were warning to all. They told others where to find the Savior, but they didn't go to find him themselves. They never did. Even to the end, they fought against him. Augustine said they were like signposts. They pointed something out to the travelers, but they remained motionless. And I love Luther's statement. He says, never mind the scribes, what saith the scriptures. And listen to me carefully about that statement. Don't, don't pass it by. Uh, do, never mind what the theologians say. What, what does the Bible say? I'm serious, okay? I, I remember a day when a couple came to visit church. And uh, first time they'd been to church, so the next day was Monday. I went by to visit them at their home. Never seen, met them before. We had a great conversation. They just sent their son off to a Bible college. And he was being taught things that they didn't believe. And the mother was concerned. And she says, I'm concerned that my son is being taught this. And the father says, oh dear, don't worry. Those guys know so much more than we do. Don't ever buy into that, my friend. Don't buy that. Luther is right. Never mind the scribes. What said the scriptures? By the way, having studied mythology a lot, when you want to find the mythology of any country, any 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 group of people, you you went out to the uh, countryside, if you will, in this country, you go out to where the farmers lived. You didn't go to the city because the city people, they start messing, you know, messing with everybody else and they compromise what they believe and they mix all this stuff together. They, if you will, syncretize. But you see what happens is out in the, that's why it's tough to farm, uh, to be a pastor in a farming region. They, they don't accept new ideas any too quickly. No, they're just going to take you back to the book. They're going to read from the King James Version, no less. And they're going to tell you exactly what the Bible says, and they, they don't want to hear all this stuff. It's fascinating when you come to this, just the sense of just understanding, trusting yourself as you look at Scripture, and believing it. Never mind the scribes, what saith the Scripture? For here in this case, the scribes who knew the answers, they didn't follow the way they should. The wise men. It's interesting because now the wise men come. And, and notice in verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house, and notice what they did. They worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then, being warned by God, they went home a different way. Let me start here first of all. I, I carry from the thing joy-filled worship, joy-filled giving, and joy-filled obedience. Um, it's fascinating because 
Joseph is going to be told right immediately now, go away to Egypt. I want to talk about, I'll get back to this later about Joseph, but Joseph is an amazing man to obey God the way he did. And when he went off like that, he could have asked God, how in the world am I going to support my family going off to Egypt, a country I don't even know, among people I don't even know. I'm just getting my occupation going here after having come down here from Galilee down to Bethlehem. And now you're taking all this away from me. But you know, God knew this ahead of time. And he brought the Magi who brought the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh. So when he went into Egypt, he had the resources to be able to take care of his newborn son and his what dear wife, Mary. God had anticipated all of this. God knows your need, my friend, before you ever realize you have one. And God makes the provision in advance to take care of whatever your need may be. And here he brings the Magi with these gifts to come just before he sends you off to Egypt to make sure that the provision is there for you as you go. They came with joy-filled worship. They had joy-filled giving. And then they joy-filled obedience. God says, I don't want you going home that way. So they went home another way. Now I want to move from that because... I want to talk about, let's say we believe that he is the king, okay? I hope you do. Let's say you understand how you should respond to this king in submission, and I hope you do. But I want to take you to the response to him as king, because now we need to practically flesh this out, and it's fleshed out in this passage. Two kings, Herod the acting king, Christ Jesus the true newborn king. Three periods in Herod's life. Struggle for supremacy, period of progressive administration, and period of domestic chaos. Now, I want to take the middle part because this man was amazing. He really was. He restored the temple. You know what he did? He trained a thousand priests so that you wouldn't defile the temple. He trained the priests to do the work. By the way, that must have made some of the craftspeople in town a little disturbed. But anyhow, I remember a fellow did a job for me in a church office. And I love working my hands. So I says, can I help you? Eh? He says, no, I have one price. If I do it myself, I double the price if you help me. I thought, okay, I'll stay out of your way. But you see these priests, to train these thousand priests to do the work. The temple proper was built in 18 months and the whole thing was built over an 18 year period. But, as great as he was, and he was awesome, Herod the Great. The man was so insecure, it was unbelievable. Okay, let's start with his, his first period. He had a brother-in-law, the name was, man was Aristobulus III, and people loved him. Well, he had Aristobulus over for dinner one day, and it so happened that Aristobulus was in the bath, okay? You know how they had the baths and so forth? And so he was in the bath at Herod's house, and somehow he never came out alive. <laughs> Amazing thing happened to him. Just happened to drown some way there. But you see, he had to get rid of him. Why? Because he was threatened by his popularity, and he wanted to be the one who was acclaimed, and he didn't want Aristobulus to get it. Well then, as I told you, he had his two favorite sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, killed. Because somebody said that they were trying to take the throne early. Let me tell you about Miriam, his, his favorite wife. He was afraid if he went on a trip and he died that someone else would get her. So he, not telling her, he told someone if this happened, if I die on the trip, I want you to take care of her. Because I don't want anybody else having her for a wife. Well, she found out she wasn't too enamored. Uh, it wasn't long after that that he put her to death. And of course, it was no big deal then if he could put the mother-in-law to death too. No, the man was amazing. As great as he was, so threatened. And that's why when you come and you hear there's a newborn king, if, if in fact you're going to kill your favorite wife, you're going to kill your two favorite sons, then certainly you're going to destroy this and the people were afraid. And you think of all the families who lost children. Maybe no more than 20, we don't know the figure. But all the families who lost children unnecessarily because of his concern that a little baby being born was going to usurp his throne. 
And he's surprised that Augustus Caesar said, I'd rather be his hoose than his wheels. I'd rather be his pig than his sons. Why? Because see, he claimed Judaism, and in Judaism you don't kill, you don't eat pigs. So therefore, his pigs weren't going to die as fast as his sons would. I'd rather be his pigs than his sons, he said. Herod was troubled, and so were the people. It is under one, any wonder that look, you look historically, you don't find the record of these children being killed because. He wreaked so much havoc on people and killed so many that 20 children was not even noted in history. But now, I would suggest to you that let's just come back to the conclusion for ourselves as we walk out of this season and into the next, the Easter season. We should joyfully worship Him no matter the cost. And may I say to you, one day it could cost you like it cost people around the world. Um... Been there, watched that, and many of here are praying for people around the world who are the persecuted church. I remember back in the 60s and 70s, they were saying that more people died in those two decades than died in the entire first century of the early church for the cause of Christ. We think of the martyrs back then, a lot of martyrs today, and people who pay a high price to worship. We take it so much for granted, and one day it could be that it will cost us to worship Christ and we will pay an incredible price to do so. The other thing we should joyfully give to him no matter the cost, and may I say it should cost us. We should joyfully worship, it might, it, it, again, it could cost us. We should joyfully give, it should cost us. If your giving to God doesn't cost you anything, it's not much of a gift, my friend. Remember David's statement, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Uh, sacrificial giving, and that's what these wise men did. But I want to bring you back to joyfully obeying him no matter the cost. And may I say it will cost you. Now, when you look at Matthew 1, there's no doubt that this child is Mary's child. The child, it says, is of the Holy Spirit in verse 20. But now he says to he goes to Joseph and, and may I say to you, Joseph is the leader. Uh, may I just just preface that? Somehow we've got a mistaken sense of what a man's role is in marriage. He's not the boss and he's not the ruler. King James Version makes a horrible mistake. If a man doesn't know how to rule well his own home, how shall he the rule of the church of God. You know what? It's it's not it's the word is prohistomy to stand in front of your family. Not to rule them. You're not the ruler, he's the ruler. Stand in front as an example. When they look at you, they should see who Jesus Christ is just by looking at your life. Paul says, imitate me like I imitate Christ. And when people look at you as the leader of the home, they should see something to imitate. Stand before as a leader. You are the leader. You provide the leadership and you provide the direction. And stand before as a protector. Nobody comes into your house before you stand there to protect them from whatever happens. Now, you know, I think, I think I thought about that because physically it's true. I used to say if anybody comes to my house, they have to go through me to get to the family. Now I say they have to go through Stephen and then they can come to me and then the family. Uh, but, but you understand the issue? That's what leadership is. You know, it's fun when all of a sudden uh, you see people blossoming into leadership. I was reflecting, so I need to tell the story. I came back from Africa in 1973, and uh, Stephen was five years old. And my older brother said, how about going backpacking with us? That was a mistake. I did not realize how emotionally uh, spent I was after all those years in Africa and whatever. And uh, we, we lost the trail. And the grass is high, and it's slapping at Stephen's face, and it's raining as hard as can be. And the first thing I do is take the backpack off his back, and next thing I do is put him on my shoulders. And then, I'll tell you what, we got to the place to camp, and we had these little pup tent things that we were sleeping, and he and I were in one, and my brother and his kids in the other. 
had. It's raining, and you can hardly, I mean, it's just, it's a small space, and the water is creeping up inside of this thing, and we're starting to, trying to tell stories to each other, and finally we decided enough of this stuff, so anyhow. It, it wasn't a positive experience, gotta tell you for a fact. Many, many years later, Scott was five. Stephen was, what, I would say 11 years old. Is that about right? So the three of us, we, we, I rented a motorhome and had my wife and the girl stay down there and the three of us went out backpacking. We got near the top and all of a sudden Stephen takes a spurt on the head. I don't know what he's doing. He puts his pack down. And of course, because I pack, I, I made sure I was carrying the heavier pack up the hill to begin with. But he came back and took my pack and carried it up for me. You know what? It's sort of cool when someone finally realizes that now they're becoming a man and, and take the initiative to do something like that. Then um, I reflected years later, uh, Stephen was working on my son-in-law's car. I had worked on the cars all those years. It's the only way we could make it. We, we could junkers. Uh, but we kept him going. My dear daughter, the youngest one, called me at school one day. I was at school, and she says, Dad, I can't get the Volkswagen going. So I went and picked my wife up and went down to the high school, and uh, it was a wire loose in the back. And I'm, I've got a shirt and tie on and a sport coat. And I sat on the bumper holding this wire in place while she drove the car home. Embarrassed her to death. Okay. I go to Stephen and he's sitting there working on son-in-law's car and I reach down to get a wrench and he picks it up and he says, uh, you want this, don't you? And I says, yeah. And he says, well, this is my job now. You know what? When people assume places of leadership because they've come to a place, I recall a time when a, a man, he just went home to glory two years ago, but... I, I was going to be gone. He was in the Sunday school classes. How about teaching for a couple of weeks? I got back and I said, where do I take off? He says, I'm not through yet. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to another class. There's no point staying here. See, the great part of this in leadership is watching leadership rise and people assume the role of being an example, being a leader, being a protector. And then you step aside and they assume the role. That's Joseph's place. Fascinating, it's not his son. You just remember this. But God said to Joseph, you are going to have this child and you are going to name him. That's the man's place. You're going to call his name Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. And then you see when in fact there, later on he came to Joseph in a dream. He didn't come to Joseph and Mary. It was Mary's child, but he didn't come to Mary. Joseph said, well, Lord, I know you want me to go to Egypt, but I go out waiting until this morning and I'll talk to Mary about it. And we'll see what we're going to do. No, God went to Joseph and said, get up out of here. And you know what's amazing? Joseph immediately got up and got the child, his mother, and they left that night for Egypt. He never balked at this. Then he gets down to Egypt, and he's, and by the way, I, well, I'll come back to this. And he gets down to Egypt, and God says, okay, I, I am coming to your dream. I want you to get back up there again. What's fascinating as you look at this is that this wasn't his child, but it was his place of leadership. God was in charge. But when God told Joseph what to do, he didn't balk a moment, ever. I just love the story of Joseph because every time God speaks, he does. Immediately. He gets up at night to take Mary's his wife. He gets up at night to go to Egypt. He gets up at night to go back home again. As soon as God talks, he moves. It's not wait a day, wait a month. No, as soon as God talks, he moves. You know what? We need to joyfully obey God no matter the cost. The focus is on Joseph. And I would remind you of something. The minute your life intertwines with Jesus Christ, you lose control, my friend. You just do. You do. You say, my life to run. <laughs> not if you've met Jesus Christ, it's not. You may think it is, but it's not. See, as soon as his life came in contact with Jesus Christ, he was no longer in control. 
God says, you know, you're going to go marry her. Okay. God says, you're going down to Egypt. Okay. God says, you're going back home. Okay. You know what? You don't hear of Joseph again, except is this not the carpenter's son? We're not sure what happened, but somehow he just, he probably died early, and he's just off the scene, and it's Mary you see. But you see, it's fascinating, because the minute you come into contact with Jesus Christ, he's in control, you're not. It's simple. And may I say to you, it cost him his well-earned reputation. Notice this. Joseph, verse 19 of chapter 1, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. I've got a pregnant wife, and and I, I don't want to disgrace her, and I love her so much, so I'm going to quietly put her aside. You know what? The rest of his life, this righteous man who'd earned his reputation, lost it. And I go back to it. There's no way people believe that this was a child that was born of God. But you know what? He was willing to sacrifice his reputation in obedience to God. How about he comes down to Bethlehem to have this child? Toughest thing it seems to me, you're a carpenter and you're gifted at your trade. And, and, and you would have built a beautiful, beautiful crib for this child. Because you could. But God designs it so you get there just in time for the baby to be born. And this baby is going to be born inside of a manger. A manger? If, if, number one, if it's my son, number one, but I'm taking care of God's son, number two, and the last thing you want to do is lay this child in a manger, but see, now he gets down there, and he's left his occupation to come down here, so now he's got to build up his business again and get his reputation going, and he's just getting going, and God says, leave for Egypt. All sense of job security was gone for him. Stability. He gets to Egypt and God says, you're moving again. You see, the interesting part of this, it cost him big time to walk in obedience to Almighty God because he'd come in contact with the king. You know, there's no telling what it cost us. Matthew, who wrote this book, knew. Matthew was a tax collector. You had to work to get there. When, when God, Jesus called Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they were working with their dad and the fishing, dads in the fishing business, the respective dads. When Jesus died, you know what they did? Peter says, I'm going fishing. Because the boats were still there and the family business still existed. Matthew could never go back. Once Jesus called him, he followed Jesus. There was no going back for Matthew. He understood the cost. When Jesus said that rich young ruler, go sell all you have and give the poor and come follow me, and the rich young ruler didn't want to do it, Matthew understood this like nobody else understood it. Let me say, when you follow Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you, friend. It's going to cost you. Cost Paul. Everything you work for, he lost, but look what he gained in the process. And I would just say to you, as you look at this, this is not just the message of Matthew 1 and 2, it's the message of the whole of the gospel and all of the epistles. And whatever it costs you, it always is and always will be worth it all. It will be. This isn't just a, just a simple story of a manger. It's a story of the king. He is the king. Acknowledge it. He is the king. Respond. In worship, joyful worship, joyful giving, and joy-filled obedience. Understand that when you do it, just like with Joseph, it's going to cost you big time. By the way, just think of how much it cost the wise men to come that far to worship him and then go home again. It's going to cost you. But it will be worth it all.